The Fail On Podcast, episode 003. For me, you know, they say write about your life, write about what you know. And for better or worse, I did not have an interesting childhood. My childhood was very dull. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hello and welcome to the podcast that believes if you desire to create the life of your dreams, then embracing failure by taking urgent and bold action is the only way. Today, you and I get to learn from none other than AJ Jacobs, a four-time New York Times bestselling author. I'll be talking to AJ about reframing moments of failure as amazing opportunities to tell a great story, being okay with failure while also being delusionally optimistic about your goal, how to manufacture confidence and belief when tackling a new project, and how to actually know when to give up and quit on a project that you're working on, and much, much more. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all of the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com, F-A-I-L-O-N.com. Without further ado, Here's AJ Jacobs. Hey there, and welcome to the Fail On Podcast. Today, I am sitting down with AJ Jacobs, a New York Times bestselling author four times over and the ultimate human guinea pig. AJ, welcome to the Fail On Podcast. Thank you. I am a huge fan of failure, so I'm honored to be. It's a great idea for a podcast. I love it. And we're just just to give everybody some context, we're sitting uh, in your New York apartment, Upper West Side. That's right. 83rd Central Park West, beautiful spot. Do you actually want me to tell them, do you care that I just mentioned where your no, house is? I mean, you don't need the address and the yeah. apartment number, but yeah, the general area. Phone number, just email. Fine. <laughs> uh, yes, it is where I've done a lot of failing, so uh, I'm glad you're here. On the, uh, on the note of failure, I usually wait to ask this question further further into the interview and conversation, but you know, with you as a human guinea pig, self-experimentor, what does failure mean to you? How do you approach it? Well, failure, I think it's hugely important. And I'm always telling my kids how important failure is. And I always highlight all of my failures to them. So I think they think I'm a total loser. Like I've got to remind that sometimes I do succeed. Uh, I've got to try to stress that so they have a little bit of respect for me. But uh, in general, I think, you know, of course, there's no success without, oh, sorry. There's another. See, this is a great podcast because you can screw up. <laughs> see, this is actually why I started the whole the whole podcast and project, right, in the business because it gives me permission to just embody failure. Like, totally. So I, I have like, if I screw up, awesome. It's it's good for my brand, right? Exactly. And if I win, it's great because it's because I'm winning. It is wonderful. <laughs> what a, you've really cracked something there. It's sort of like Larry David and how his brand is. He's a total jerk. So he can like act like a jerk and everyone's like, oh, that's so great. So that's he who be, he is. Right. Yeah, it's the, he can be the worst person in the world and people love it. I love it. Uh, so yeah, I, um, I, I think you can't achieve anything with failure and anything I've done has been, you know, 80 failures to one success. And, uh, and, and you talk to experts on creativity and how like, you know, Picasso, He's he he's uh he's got a bunch of crappy paintings, you know. <laughs> it's true. not even everyone fails. Everyone's got the it's it's a numbers game. You've got to just throw out so many ideas and so much product, and some of it's gonna suck and some of it's gonna hit. So uh, how did, how did you first come to this realization that you have to kind of embrace failure, and know that it's part of life and know that it's gonna happen a lot. Like, were you always, like, as a kid, were you always just trying crazy stuff, or did this come, like, later in life? A little bit. Uh, I, I mean, it's certainly when I started my career as a freelancer, it was, you're going to get, it's like being an actor. You're going to get 99 failures for every one article. And I have, you know, there were some particularly humiliating ones. There was one where I was, I had a, a book idea, and I wrote a proposal. I sent it to an agent. He said a couple of publishers were interested uh, could I send a headshot, a photograph? 
And I was like, oh, you know, a little weird, but sure. And he's like, yeah, it's just to make sure that you don't have two heads so you can go on the talk show. So I do that, and I send it to them. And then two days later, he's like, well, they decided to pass. I'm like, I'm not good looking enough to be an author. Like an author, you're supposed to allow it to be. It's just words, uh, yeah. right. That's like uh, one of the few places you can be ugly. So, uh, so yeah, that was unfortunate. So, was that before you had had published a book before? That was my first book, yeah. Oh, okay, um, but I really, uh, I don't know what it was, uh, but I decided I'm gonna just be okay with failure and rejection. You know, I'll give it like you know three years, and if I just if I get no successes, then I'm gonna reevaluate and go, you know. Do something. Yeah. I don't know. In the traditional publishing world, you have to be okay with failure, right? It's because I you just hear all the stories of of people sending out a million proposals and just getting like destroyed. Exactly. And I mean, now luckily I've had some measure of success, but I still get it rejected all the time. So it's hard, but you really have to try not to take it personally and all that. And uh, and yeah, I, I actually one thing is. A nice thing is to try to reframe it as, well, I can tell a story about this failure. So actually, you get you. This is why you. this is why I love talking to you about this because it's my whole strategy, right? Yeah, that's your job. Like, how about this, for example? I so I interviewed a, a, a buddy, Nick Tarasio, last night, and um, I was telling him this story. That so I was interviewing James, right? And for whatever reason, throughout the whole interview, I mean, this is brutal for me because I was a little bit intimidated and nervous to go talk to James, even though I had talked to him before. Right. But for whatever reason. And so we're going through the interview and he starts calling me Ron. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> brutal. And uh, Nick, Nick last night was like, man, you should have just started calling him Jake. Nice. <laughs> but I didn't, you know, so hindsight. But uh like that, that's a bit of a failure because James called me Ron the whole interview. But I'm gonna have to. I gave him a hard time after we got off the air, but I didn't correct him during the during the interview because I would have felt a little bit like an asshole. You know, right, I was like, "What's right. Rob?" But yeah. uh, yeah, well, so, so like that. But now I've got a, now I've got a story about you it. Got a story. I've got that's a story. Right. I can write an article about it, and boom. I actually once wrote an essay on uh, on something called self Schadenfreude. You know, Schadenfreude is when you take pleasure at other people's pain, and this is when you take pleasure at your own pain because you realize it'll. Make make a good story later. So even in the most awkward moments, and I've had many, at, at least in the back of your mind, try to remember, well, this is so horrible, but it's going to be a good story. What's been one of your more awkward moments like that where it's just been like, oh, this is painful? Well, there's been many. I mean, one was I was uh, working in an entertainment magazine, Entertainment Weekly. This was a long time ago, and I looked like a a B-list actor named Noah Taylor, who was in a movie that was very popular at the time. It was called, uh, oh, I can't remember what it was, about a piano player. And uh, he, oh, Shine, it was called Shine. And it was nominated for an Oscar, and I looked exactly like this guy. We found out he wasn't going to be at the Oscars. Sure. <laughs> so uh, we were like, you know what, maybe I should go to That's the amazing, Oscars. Yeah. And so I put on a tux. We did have a ticket. But uh, every I got out of the, t the the limo and everyone's like, oh my God, it's Noah Taylor. And I was like waving and signing autographs. <laughs> Were you really? Oh yeah. I was, what I year mean, is this, by the way, just so, for some context? This was late night, like probably 99 or 2000. So almost 20 years ago. It's crazy. But at one point I went up to his coast. I got so cocky. I went up to his co-star. No way. Was, that wouldn't be that far. I was, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush, who's a really famous actor, you know, Jeffrey sure. Rush. Yeah. And I was like, uh, he was Australian. So I had this bad Australian accent. It sounded sort of like the Lucky Charms Leprechaun. And I was like, hello, Jeffrey, it's me, Noah. <laughs> he just looked at me <laughs> like, because he knew I wasn't this guy. Of course. And it was, he like looked at me, backed away, he's like calling for security. And it was just <laughs> so horrible. But even in that moment, I'm like, all right, this is really one of the worst moments of my life. But I will, uh, I'll be able to write about it. Were you doing it for the story? So you're doing it for the story to have an amazing story to write about. And I mean, was, was anybody filming it or what? No, no, uh, no one was filming, but I was writing an article about it. But, uh, but I didn't, I didn't expect it to go that badly, but when it did, it was kind of good. And actually, you know, um, you mentioned before I did, I do uh, a podcast and some of the best interviews I find are when I'm 
just make an idiot of myself and totally I agree, yeah. ask them a terrible question and they kind of get angry <laughs> at me and yell at me that's so much that's much better radio than them right just canned answers that they've told everybody before exactly yeah yeah so this was in the late 90s and it was a sounds like an amazing stunt have you always been doing these crazy stunts to have something to write about i think so i think for me, you know, they say write about your life, write about what you know. And for better or worse, I did not have an interesting childhood. My childhood was very dull uh, <laughs> sure. and relatively happy. Not not happy, but uh, uneventful. Uh, just unhappy in a boring way. And uh, so I figured if I'm going to write about something, uh, I better make it myself. So I, you know, put myself in interesting experiences and then I can write about that. Got it. And what was, do you remember the first time you did it? Like the first, well, not even the first time you did it, but the first time you were like, if I'm going to be a great writer, I'm going to have to create great circumstances and, and put myself in these situations. Right. That's like a great way to put it. And I, I think one, one of the earlier ones was the Oscar. Um, I also did one where I, um, well, they, <laughs> I was working at Entertainment Weekly and Lazy Boy, you know, the chair company, they come out with the newest, highest tech lazy boy ever and it was like a butt massager <laughs> a beer fridge so uh yeah and so the idea was i don't think i even came up with it my editor is like you gotta take this to the extreme you've mm. got to road test this and stay in there for 24 hours without moving it did not have a toilet uh so i did get up once or twice but uh other than that it was like extreme leisure how f pushing my body to the limit of laziness and uh so that i was like this is a nice way to make a living <laughs> <laughs> sitting a lazy boy the highest tech lazy boy yeah <laughs> not <amazing>. bad <laughs> so beyond that what made you so did you, i'm sure you did a series or string of articles like this by pure experimentation T take us back to the first book you did where like you wanted to go explore that route yeah i uh well when i was growing up my dad uh, he loved reading, uh, and at one point he started to read the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, but he didn't get very far. He got up to like the bees, like Bolivia or something, and then he realized he had a life and uh, had probably should do something. <laughs> Can't else. read this whole thing, yeah. Right. But I just love the idea of taking this extreme challenge. You know, I, I'm not uh, very athletic and I don't, you know, I like oxygen. I like oxygen. So I'm not going to climb, uh, you know, K2. So, uh, and I like, I, you know, I get cold at around 72 degrees. So <laughs> right. It's just not my thing. But I like these intellectual Mount Everests uh, or, or social Mount Everest. Like take on this huge challenge. And see what happens. It's going to be interesting. And knowing that, as you know, as you say, you, you very well might fail, um, and that's okay. That's part of the experience. Is that how you go into it with that kind of mindset of, you know, what I'm okay if this doesn't work out. Like, were you okay starting starting that project where you read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica if you actually weren't going to get the whole way through? Right. Were you okay with that? Or was it just kind of like a do or die because you're documenting it and right. writing about it? Well, it's interesting because I think there are two sort of warring ideas going on in, in our brains or my brain anyway. And one is being okay with failure. And the other is this idea that you have to be delusionally optimistic to undertake anything huge. So, and and if you're not delusionally optimistic and at least some part of you isn't saying, I'm going to, I could do this, then you are more likely to fail because you'll just give up. So it's balancing these two parts of the brain, being okay with failure and when it happens, accepting it and, and turning it into a story. And then on the other hand, being like, you know, I can I can go to the moon. Like, like it's crazy. But. Like self belief that just kind of comes from nowhere. Or like where yeah. like how do you manufacture that belief to where you feel like I can do this? Like I can I can stick with this and yeah. make it happen. Well it's a good question. And I think that for me the most uh, effective method is to act delusionally optimistic. The, this whole idea I talk a lot about is like, it's not my quote, but it's a great quote. It's like, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. So for instance, when I was writing one of my books, this was about health and I knew nothing about health. 
and I'm not very healthy. So, and it's such a huge topic. So every day I would wake up and I'd be, you know, filled with despair. Like, why am I doing this? It's never going to come out. But I would act as if I was super confident. So I would call these doctor, you know, experts and say, you know, I need to interview you. I would call my publisher and be like, when this book comes out, let's throw a big party and we'll serve kale martinis, you know. I like So I was planning for success, even though one side of me was, was totally um, insecure. So, yeah, acting totally confident, I find, is a very effective strategy. Gotcha. So going into the, I mean, did, did the health book even interest you? Like, like you said, you didn't, really, you didn't really care about it too much. <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry for the publisher there. But. I totally phoned it in. I had no interest. Just wanted to make a buck. <laughs> uh, well, for example i mean what made you take on that project and that that actually was going to lead me to my next question which is do you pick your projects or is it kind of driven on the publisher side or what how do you how do you come up i with do these? come up with all of them because okay. i do have to be passionate about the topic Got or it. else I'm, you know they take a year or two so i can't yeah, these are small projects uh, yeah i can't pay like you were telling me earlier how you just you had a successful business, but you just weren't passionate about it. So you're going to take a risk and do something you love, which is, I, I love that. Um, well, thank you. I was, I was actually reading, uh, I was reading a kind of a parallel that I was like, oh, that's similar to what, similar to what I'm doing right now. And it was, have you seen Breaking Bad? I have. Gr- great show, right? So you are, and it was uh, like, it was basically, Heisenberg? it was basically Walter White. You know, he had so his whole goal was to was to you know support his family because he was going to die of cancer. So right. he wanted to put money away so they could you know, they could live on and not worry about finances. Right. And he had to come to a decision after he got that money: do you turn off the money machine or do you keep going down that route, which eventually led to his death and <laughs> a lot of the de- deaths of a lot of people he cared about. Right. I so, love that he is your uh, your role model. <laughs> well, not that I'm selling meth. <laughs> not that I'm creating and selling meth, but uh, it's kind of a parallel that I was like, hey, that's it's similar because I'm I am turning off money to go to something that I actually care about, which is you know inspiring people to to take action and embrace failure. So. Right, I got you. So you're doing the opposite of what? Yeah, you I'm did. trying not to kill myself. And I that see. I like, okay, so. I got confused. There. I thought you were saying that you wanted. No, to no, do no, the no. Meth. So I'm doing the opposite. Got it. All right, that's probably. Better. Yes, I would say, uh, to just get back to your health question, uh, one of the things I loved about it is it's such a huge part of life, and I was so ignorant. And so just embracing your ignorance and trying to dive into a totally new topic, because I think the way society is structured now and and it's out of necessity is uh, many times is, you know, we're very focused on very narrow disciplines. Uh, but I think some of the best ideas are, are interdisciplinary. So uh, I enjoyed trying to conquer my ignorance, which I didn't, you know, I'm still incredibly ignorant <laughs> about health, but at least I'm, I'm better. Right. What was the biggest challenge within the, within the health space when you did that project that I, like I can imagine you actually have like these health and fitness gurus that could give you a hard time because you're doing this experiment. Did you run into that at all? Like with people that were like, why, you know, you're not a health expert. Why are you doing this? Mm, interesting. I didn't run into that much skepticism there. Uh, another one of my books was out re- about religion and mm. I definitely oh, got I can people who are like, you know, you are just a dabbler. And I'm like, listen, I, uh, dabbling should not have a negative connotation. Like uh, we, I think the best ideas, as I say, are interdisciplinary. So by definition, you have to dabble in a bunch of different things to uh, to come up with new ideas. But yeah, anyway, I'm you know, I'm sure I got a lot of skepticism, but not to my face. God. <laughs> as long as it's not to your face, it's fine. You can be yeah, ignorant about it, right? Exactly. <laughs> what are some of the experiments you've done that have started like that you started that really became I and mean, we talked about this before we got on the air, that became too overwhelming that you just couldn't follow it through? Or, yeah. or were there any? No, no, there's always as as you know, failure is a huge part of my my day. And uh, I would say, well, one, I readers often suggest ideas for me, which I love. Uh, and a, one that I've gotten repeatedly is that people say that I should try to become the greatest lover of all time. So like <laughs> challenge uh, accepted. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, not really, because it was one, you know, one idea was to follow, do all the positions in the Kama Sutra. And I brought it up with my wife, and she's like, that is not going to happen. That is exhausting. 
you know, we have kids, <laughs> yeah. maybe like, yeah. you know, they, they could see it. They could start seeing this book. Yeah. You don't want yeah. them to see yeah, it. Yeah. That'd be a nightmare. Uh, yeah. And I don't have the flexibility. Like 20, I encourage any uh, young writers out there, uh, please feel free, but I am not going to do it. I also did one where I, um, I tried to sort of be a mind reader. I, I profiled this guy named Paul Ekman who is a very interesting psychologist, and he talks a lot about uh, micro-expressions, which are when you can read people's faces, uh, they're just like very quick flashes of anger. Uh, and I don't know how scientifically valid it is. I mean, he's a legit scientist, but I don't know if his theories are real, but it's fascinating stuff. And I, uh, so I started it, but it, I realized it would take years to get to the proficiency that it would be interesting. So I reluctantly just abandoned it. So is, like, you know, is that one of the requirements that allows you to decide whether or not it's going to be a project you take on now? Like if you actually, if it's actually going to take, you know, like they say, 10,000 hours to actually become super proficient in it or world class in it. Um, like if it's going to be something like that, right. is that something that you're like, okay, that's probably not a good fit? Well, I think I'm willing to devote, I mean, the health book took two years of my life. So I'm willing, I know. <laughs> you're willing to put in the hours. I can put in the hours, but this one seemed to be, uh, you know, maybe 10 years or oh, well, if yeah. at all. Like, sure. you know, I don't know. You don't want to give up a decade to, for it to maybe not work. <laughs> exactly. There's a limit to uh, failure. Sometimes Got it. that is the most, uh, I think... Uh, I just reviewed a book where they talked about the importance of quitting, and uh, and I like that. I think that's true. I, I mean, you hear some motivational speakers who say, never give up, never give up, but you should give up sometimes, or else... Like, like when? How do you know when? when's a good time to give up? Well, I think that... Uh, well, my decisions are mostly based on... I've become very, like, um, pro-con list, uh, you know... Uh, I, I literally do make those lists. And by the way, one of my heroes, Charles Darwin, he made, when he was deciding whether or not to get married, he literally made a list, a pro-con list for marriage. Like, here's, I won't be able to hang out with my gentleman friends and drink as much. <laughs> right. And on the other hand, like, right. you know, I won't be alone when I die. So I love that. And I tell my wife, you know, I try, I say on Valentine's Day, the, the uh, the advantages of being married to you outweigh the costs. Sure. <laughs> <I think. laughs> that's, that's, very, that's very romantic. Yeah, I'm sure she loves it. <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my romantic. So I do, I do try to decide with a very much a cost-benefit analysis. And if, the, if you're doing something that, A, is not going to make the world a better place, and B, you're not enjoying, and C, it's just, you know... Five percent chance that it's going to work. You know, quit. There's no shame in it. Yeah. There's no shame. Move in on it. to something that's a better fit. Right. Got it. So you mentioned your wife. I'm I'm just curious to see, like, is she extremely supportive of all this crazy stuff you do? And like, no. How, how does it affect it? Like, Not at all. And thank God, because <laughs> in my books, she's sort of the foil. She's the uh, she represents the skepticism of the reader. She's sort of that incarnate. And without her skepticism, I think it would be a less interesting experience. So thankfully, and you'd probably do more ridiculous things than you probably should. Maybe exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if she was she, right there pushing you along, right? She might save me, yeah, with yeah. her skepticism. So thankfully, no, she is not supportive. And one of the the one of the books was about following all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. And one of the rules in Leviticus is that you should not touch women during their time of month during their menstrual cycle. And uh, and then even further, if you take it literally, you should not sit in a seat where a menstruating woman has sat because then the seat becomes impure. And my wife found that offensive. So when she was menstruating, she sat in every seat in our apartment. So I had to stand for most of the year. That is amazing. Good for her. Yeah. And it turned out when I did my health book, you know, sitting is very bad for you. So standing. Is, so how do you, how do you do your writing? I imagine you spend a lot of time writing. So or actually, I know I know you spend a lot of time writing. <laughs> but uh, are you are you standing? Or are you sitting? Or? I am. Well, I did for that health book. One of the few things I kept was that I do write on a treadmill desk. Oh, are you actually walking as you write, as you type? Yeah, very slowly. Sure. Grandpa, but you're moving. But I'm moving. And it's not even necessarily for the health. It's more for to keep me awake. Because if I'm sitting at a desk, I'm liable to just... <laughs> to fall, doze off? Yeah, doze off. I, I'm getting that old that I just like 
my head goes down on the keyboard. So is that one of the more enduring, um, I guess, lessons that have stuck with you through these experiments? Obviously, you took that from your your health experiment, right? You're yeah, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand more because it's obviously better for me, and right, you won't doze off. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other lasting changes that have oh, yeah. been in your life that well, you, from I your think experiments? The good thing is every one of the experiments, even if they're overall a failure. They do give me something that has continued in my life. And for instance, in the Bible, it talked about, I had to do a lot of crazy stuff. I had like a beard down to my navel and I was wearing robes and not wearing clothes mixed of different kinds of fiber. So those I no longer do. But one thing I definitely took away was this idea of gratitude. Because in the Bible, it talks about you should be thankful for everything. And they are, so I took that literally. So I was being thankful nonstop. I was, I'd press the elevator button and I'd be thankful the elevator came. And then I'd get in the elevator, I'd be thankful it didn't plummet to the basement. So hundreds of times a day, just nonstop. And it was a strange way to live, but it was also wonderful because you realize there are hundreds of things that go right every day that we totally take for granted, and we focus on the three or four that go wrong. So it was this radical shift in perspective. And of course, it's impossible to keep that up full-time, but I've really tried my best. And I, I, it's one of the things I'm actually proudest of is that I've been able to sort of change from, uh, you know, I still get incredibly annoyed and frustrated by lots of things, but I do try to do the opposite as well. So even when like, like this happens all the time at an airport. Like in some part of my mind, I believe that I always get the farthest gate. <laughs> right, it just right, seems that right. way. So every time I get a, a gate that's right close to the uh, security, I make a mental note. I'm like, all right, remember this. Remember the fact. This is that, a good day. <laughs> yeah. Like don't just forget it because it's easy to forget. Right. Remember this. And next time you're walking to the mm. gate two miles away, be like, uh, yeah, this doesn't happen all the time. This is yeah. Well, that's a great that's a great lesson because it one it makes you stay in the present, right? And it makes you be grateful for the little things that people glance over most of the time. Right. When you're actually going into the project, like the elevator example, right, where you had to be thankful for everything, you know, getting on and not plummeting to the bottom and killing everybody. How did you make going into that project? How did you make that mindset shift? to where you had to be hyper aware of these little things. Because I imagine you can't just go from one day to the next and just hope to have this right. mindset where it just automatically works. It's true. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how I did it exactly, but I will say that over the last 20 years, I've really tried to think about thinking a lot and be aware of my thinking and metacognition because I don't trust my brain. I think my brain is a terrible, like it's a baby and it's like greedy and petty and I hate it. So I like, I treat it as, I treat it like a baby. And I'm like, I, this, my brain needs a babysitter. It needs to be constantly watched. Uh, so anytime I can, I just try, you know, hundreds of times a day, I stop and be like, what am I thinking about? Is that a good thing to be thinking about? Is that... A diluted thing is, you know, as it warped. So it's, I guess the only answer I have is, is just practice and just try to start every day, a couple of times a day, stopping and being like, all right, what am I thinking about? Is this a good thing to be thinking? And uh, and not just letting your mind go wherever it wants to go. Sure, sure. Because my mind, I don't trust <laughs> at all. So if you don't trust your mind, what do you, like when you're making decisions, Is do you have a lot of like intuition, gut feeling type stuff where... Uh, you lean on a lot more than the intellect side? No, I am not a fan of my gut. I think my gut is as dumb as my brain. <laughs> sure. My gut. I am much more into the, the uh, you know, the pro-con list, the, Got uh, it. Yeah. the costs and benefits, because I really do think that is, uh, that's the best way to make decisions. And, you know, you're going to make lots of terrible decisions, but, right. but I find I make uh, fewer terrible decisions with sure. this. So obviously you open yourself up to huge potential failures and embarrassment. And with this being the fail on podcast, I believe that doing this and leaning into it is really where the growth happens. Yeah. So have, have you always had the ability to really go into these situations just not giving a rip? Or is it something <laughs> that you've had to develop over time? Oh, no. Well, I definitely give a rip is the thing. I just have to work through it and, you know, be okay with it and try to. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm... 
I think that it's partly that when you fail and you can turn it into a story, as I said, or, you know, revel in the failure, that's, and lean into it, just what you said. That is, that is so important. Once you make that decision in your life, in your head, you're like, you know what? Don't be afraid of the failure. That, that certainly has helped. And I'll tell you, my new book is about family. Uh, and one of the chapters is all about failure, family failure. Because uh, there's the most, the most famous study in, uh, in family history and like genealogy is the study from a couple of years ago by Emory University that said people, kids who learn about their family history are happier, more well-adjusted, more successful than those who don't. Uh, but it's not just knowing the dates and names of your grandparents. It's the knowing the story of your family and not just the successes but the failures the the guy who did the study calls it the oscillating narrative the idea that here's you know our family succeeded here then they were like lost all their money and your uncle went to jail but they rebuilt their lives so this idea of you know success failure mm. success failure cross generations yeah cross generations and that is so crucial to equipping your kids mm. to having grit and is there enough documentation out there to to truly do that for most families like is are most families well documented enough to where you can actually trace that back and and, and pull that narrative out to yeah. learn from it that's a good question i mean i i can speak for myself that there's been a nice amount of failure in my family sure. <laughs> so even my grandfather who was very successful he was a lawyer, but he all you know he invested in some terrible ideas, <laughs> like a, a midget pony farm. I don't even know what that is, but he lost a lot of money. And then his father ran for ran for political office on the Bull Moose Party, which was Teddy Roosevelt's party, and it was uh, he failed. So I love to bring that up to my kids and just say. Look at all of the failures in here. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big at bat, though, even running for office. But it is interesting about politics. I would never run for office. But you do have to have that delusional optimism if you run for office. And I think you have to, if I were going to do that and stay sane, I would have to do what I see some of these politicians doing, where they say, even though we lost, we got our message out there and we made a difference. So sort of reframing it not as a black and white total failure, but you actually did something. You had your voice heard, and maybe that'll, in the future, have some good impact. And I think that's the biggest lesson of all, really, is taking something away from everything you try, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's a failure or success, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a failure if you, take, if you walk away with a learning experience. Exactly, right? exactly. Wait, wasn't there's some Oscar Wilde quote? I think I quoted it in my yearbook uh, in like eighth grade. (laughs) What do we got? uh, Which I'm going to mangle. But it's something like uh, experience is the. Wait, look up Oscar Wilde. Yeah, I'll look it up. Failure. Because it's. uh, You don't want to butcher it, do you? Yeah, and it could be the exact opposite of what we're trying to say. He could be making fun of us. Experience is the name everyone gives to their failure. Is that it? Hold on. This is not. I was, good I was trying to. I was trying to. No, it's great radio. I was trying to Google. I was trying to Google it on my laptop, but I realized I don't even know you connected to the Wi-Fi. Here it is. <laughs> Experience is simply the name we give our mistakes, hmm. which is true. And it sounds like he's kind of making fun of that, but uh, <laughs> right. but I disagree with him. I think it is, it is what we what we should call our mistakes is experience. No, I totally agree. What would you recommend for somebody that's listening that that wants to create something more than what they're doing now? Maybe they're in a nine to five job, but they're they're scared of the the, fel- the potential failure and embarrassment of trying something new. Right. Like how would like for your kids, for example, how would you teach them to lean into failure and not be terrified of it? Uh, well, yeah, I just try to remind them uh, of all the great people and all of the failures that they had. So um, and. Uh, you know, as I said, Mozart wrote tons of crappy opera. And, uh, and then uh, I had a section in one of my books on all of the people I read about in the encyclopedia who had failed, like the inventor of the Xerox machine, Chester Carlson, who got rejected 42 times, or, you know, J.K. Rowling, didn't she get rejected like 83 times? I don't know the statistics. Jake, Jake Altucher. 
Jake Altucher. Exactly. Who's got 17 failed businesses. <laughs> so I try to remind him of that. And then I would say, yeah, one of the things that I'm an evangelist for is just people trying to experiment with their life. And not, obviously, since I... Uh, you know, I do this for a living. You, not not everyone can <laughs> right. grow a beard and walk around looking like Moses, but you can do smaller, more manageable experiments like, you know, try not to gossip for a week or try to thank 20 people who helped you in your life that uh, you haven't even talked to. And uh, But just, I did that once and just called up people I hadn't talked to and just thanked them for being a, a mentor and it was awkward, and, uh, you know, they were embarrassed, and I was embarrassed. But it was good. You reconnected with people you probably hadn't talked to in a while. Yeah. No, I've, someone is talking about how it's good to, like, every day just call someone. Oh, Kids are home. <laughs> speaking of failure, this is great, because now, like, the podcast is just a disaster. It's all good. It's yeah. all good. We'll, we'll, see, like I said, fail on. We'll roll with it. All right. That's very good. Oh, they're home early. But, uh, well, do you want to move to a different uh, area? Or do you want to finish up here? Whatever you want. You tell me. I'm okay with them. I'm okay if, if, if you're okay. All right. Let's do it. That'll make... There's nothing wrong with little kids running around in the background. Exactly. <laughs> make, make it interesting. It's part of it. So when you were first getting into writing and, and doing all of these experiments, what was your biggest fear? Like, did, you, did you have one? Well, I think just like... Will I be able to make a living out of this? Mm. Uh, and when you started to do like the freelance stuff, were you? All, did you have a full time job at the time, or were you? Hi, Lucas. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> uh, I started with a. Uh, I worked at a tiny, tiny newspaper in California, Antioch, California. Doesn't even exist anymore. It was uh, yeah, circulation like you know twelve thousand. And, uh, you know, I did the worst. Like, it was just not a thing. It was, it was hard to be thankful for the job. I, t I covered, like, <laughs> sure. sewage, a lot of sewage issues. And, you know, there was uh, someone was throwing a ball at the mall, and that was a story I had to cover. And then, uh, so, yeah, I guess the idea was, uh, you know, I could have... I could have been like you. I stayed there my whole life easily with inertia, but I decided to take a risk. And uh, uh, a friend of mine wrote a book where he talked about uh, this Italian concept of uh, spezzatura. I think I'm pronouncing that totally wrong. <laughs> but you said it with like gusto. I did. So. Yeah, I try to commit. Uh, <laughs> Spezza, uh, you know what? I will send you the actual word, but I, it's S P E Z. It's some, but it's an Italian idea that perfection is boring. So uh, this was he was an editor at Esquire. So if you were right, you know, taking a picture of a suit, uh, a guy wearing a suit, you don't want the pocket square to be perfectly symmetrical. You want it just a little bit off. Got it. Because <laughs> that's interesting. So never be perfect. Perfection is boring. And this podcast is not boring. And it's definitely not perfect. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait. Spetsatora. Studied carelessness. Oh, I like that. A characteristic quality of style in art or literature. Well, studied seems to indicate like you're trying to be careless. But uh, I just think not, not when you're doing some project being okay with right. it, that it's because not I, perfect. It's a good point because I, I know for me anyways, when I was just trying to figure out how to get into business, I was doing a lot of reading, reading business books, reading like self-development books, self-growth books. And I think a lot of people get paralyzed actually by kind of too much information consumption, right? Totally. Rather than just going and trying and doing and taking action. Right. Well, that's as a writer, I feel that all the time because I, I'm like, well, I should do more research because I'm not an expert in this. And if I did that, if I um, gave into that temptation, I would never write anything because I would just be doing research on one book for the rest of my life because you can. Because <laughs> you could never have enough information, right. right? Like there's so much. And I have to remind myself every time I write, you know, there's... There's going to be people who say, you know, you forgot about this, you forgot about that. And I just have, you know, I'm like, this is just my effort. And there's a nice, uh, I read about uh, in the encyclopedia, the, the word essay and where it came from. And it was the French writer Montaigne. 
and it means essay means to try. I try. It's from uh, Latin I didn't know that. France. Yeah, that's nice. So the idea is, yeah, essays are just attempts. They're just try. You know, you just give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, is that one you actually remembered from doing the project? Yes, I remember. Like you know, twelve actual <laughs> facts. <and> that's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's actually funny, but. <laughs> But essay was one because it was relevant, right? Yeah, it definitely struck a chord with me. And uh, also, opossums have 13 nipples. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of uh, thing. Uh, I don't know if that's the important really stuff. Relevant. You know what? Just talking about random stuff right now. But uh, I was listening to you and, and Jake Altucher's podcast, <laughs> and I, I loved it because something you said, you're talking to them about peeing in the sink. Oh, my. Yeah. And that's something I do as well. Really? So. All right. <laughs> buff on that. Look at that. Um, All right. But I think Wait until you leave before going to the bathroom. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you. I don't need the bathroom. I just need a sink. <laughs> <laughs> Kitchen? All right. <laughs> no, but you, you said you do it only in the bathroom sink. But Yeah, that's true. I sometimes do it in the kitchen sink. Wow. Just <laughs> Good for you. You're bold. You commit. I don't think my wife even knows that. So sorry, Jacqueline. <laughs> I definitely have. I haven't told her that, actually. <laughs> so, well. Well, it is technically, uh, you know, it is, uh, what's the word I'm looking San- for? San- yeah, it's yeah. sanitary. It's, yeah. uh, so, hopefully you're not. I'm cleaning them. Uh, I'm cleaning the sink. You are doing a favor <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> so, what's the last thing that you've done recently to get outside your comfort zone? Like, do you actually make concerted efforts to say, I'm going to put myself out there today? Yeah, I think I'll try to do that every day. And I did a podcast with uh, Gimlet, uh, mm. and that was totally outside my comfort zone. Cause, Why? Because you're used to just the written word? Yeah, the written word. And it's a totally, uh, you know, it was a, it's a very interesting company because they are all about uh, storytelling. They're sort of, they're from This American Life. They're all This American Life refugees. So uh, I'm even when I, I love doing podcasts, but usually it's like just like this one where it's just two people talking. But this was more like making a movie, a movie, mm, a, like a, a sound movie. Yeah, right. like every hour. It was only five hour long episodes, but each one took literally months. It was wow, nuts. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then just learning how to interview for uh, radio was different than interviewing for uh, like one thing, I, I when I interview for writing, it's just a little thing. Uh, you know, I'm always going like, mm, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, just so that people know I'm listening. Exactly. But on radio, that's really irritating. So I had to. I, I've got to because I do I do the same thing all the time. Just because you know it's more engaging in a conversation. Yeah. But I've like got to cut it all out when I'm actually <laughs> editing, right? So it's it's a little annoying. It creates extra work, but. I'd rather I'd rather do that and have to edit later, so we have a more right. flowing conversation rather than me being a mute over here and just like nodding my head. <laughs> Interesting. So you cut it out later. I like that. Yeah, but it's uh, yeah. Most people I've seen just stay silent, which to yeah. me is a little weird. It's like, tough. It's hard to have a normal conversation. Which... I did have one producer who said to me right up front, like, "I'm going to be nodding." I normally would be saying uh, yes, but. I'm just going to nod and know that I'm paying attention. Sure. It is. It's, it's easier, I guess, than having to do it in post-production. But um, in what ways are you taking the lessons that you've learned to create new projects? Like, what are you looking to do in the future in terms of experiments? Well, I, I think that it is, uh, as I said, I, I only can really commit to something if I'm really fascinated by it. But luckily, I think the world is crazy fascinating. I mean, it is so, and it just gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> and uh, so I am, I'm now looking to do more stuff that is, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this. I'm not even, I better, I'm not even going to say it, but it's more like, you know. As well, I, well, you, well, where, well, I'm, where were you going? That I'm very old now, so I'm really oh, you're not looking. Very old. Well, you're nice to say. I'm 49. I'm 49. So you're, almost, you're not even 50. Not even you've 50. Got, you've got another 50 to go. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, but yeah, you know, just the whole idea of making the world a better place. It's such a cliche, but it is really, I feel I've been so crazy fortunate that I've I've lived uh, I, I've had moments of happiness, and they, they slightly outweigh the moments of unhappiness. So overall, I feel that I'm 
uh, you know, I should be grateful. So any project I do, I do try to think, will this make the world a better place? Which was definitely not something I thought about in my 20s. It was like, you know. So that's something that's come with, with time. Yeah. Because, mm. uh, yeah, I think I did some stuff like, you know, like even just making fun, like doing like a throwaway joke about uh, David Arquette or some, you know, not sure. great actor. But <laughs> right there, I just <laughs> slammed him. I just I just went back on my I'm a hypocrite. But anyway, he's a lovely man, lovely actor. But like, I'm t- I'd be tempted to do that when I'm writing, but as, and then I I try to th- go back and think, you know, is this really worth? It? Is it worth the little, the pleasure, the tiny pleasure I get, <laughs> and maybe some readers get right. from making fun of this guy? Yeah. Is that worth it for the, the pros and cons list? <laughs> yes, it's all about the pros and cons. It really is. Got it. Who's had the most profound impact on your life? If you had to look back and and you say, I wouldn't be where I am today without their influence. Well, that's good. I mean, that is, first, I, I think it's a long list I because I really do. Uh, that's another thing I've tried to remind myself is that, A, luck is a huge part of life. On some level, you do make your own luck. I, I do think that you can't, things don't happen unless you really work hard and are optimistic. But on the other hand, there are millions of incredibly talented people who just did not succeed in their field just because they got bad breaks. They got bad breaks. And, and I think that is a good way. It makes you more compassionate and less cocky. And it's like, you know. So I realized that my book, say my book comes out in November, uh, or say another one of my books came out like two years ago, say that same month there were, you know, hundreds of other books that came out that were just as good, if not better, but didn't sell as much just because of luck. So anyway, I try to keep that in mind because it makes you more grateful and compassionate, I think. But, uh, you know, the usual, uh, my dad uh, has a great work ethic. He's like a really hard. He's the one who started to read the encyclopedia. Inspiration for your project. Yeah, exactly. And my grandfather, I think he was delusionally optimistic. He's the one who did all of those crazy businesses, many of which failed. So you're taking positive things from, from both of those guys to, to, to do what you do. I think so. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. So being the fail on podcast where we believe in pushing people outside their comfort zone, embracing fear and failure, and you obviously being the ultimate human guinea pig that does crazy experiments. Aside from Tim Ferriss. Aside, yeah, aside from Tim Ferriss. <laughs> he's, he's right there with you. <laughs> I love but it. I'd love for you to extend a challenge to us that we can actually fail on and, yeah. do- and document and come back to you and, and share the results. Well, I love that. And I love, yeah, I love encouraging people to try things out. Yeah, one thing that occurred to me while we were talking mm-hmm. is we discussed being grateful and thanking people. Right. Uh, so maybe, even though it's embarrassing, sure. Uh, try calling 10 people mm. or emailing at least 10 yep. people that you haven't talked to in a long time who had a very positive influence on your life and just say, I know this is a little odd and out mm. of the blue, but I've been trying to think of who's help my life and sure. uh, and tell them an anecdote or whatever. I love it. I think it's I think it'll make your life happier and and theirs too. Accepted. All right. Done. I want to hear. I want to hear what happens. So, you got the book coming out in November and Right. You're actually on kind of deadline right now, but you have to get the draft done by Friday, is that right? Yeah, I have to all my mm. changes. I mean, I finished the book, but there's lots of uh edits, right? Uh, yeah, edits and mostly fact checking cuz sure. I do try to, you know, when I'm writing, I like got a all excited I'm, and I don't want to check like was it 1903 or 1908 pure so, just for flow right you right just for flow. ripping through it so then I have to go back mm. and do all that got it got it so what's you want to tell us a little bit about the book obviously you've done a lot with genealogy right well the book is based on this idea of uh, that there's a group of people scientists and researchers who are building a big family tree like the biggest like the ultimate seven billion people all on one family tree and i love that idea it's not done yet uh it it won't be done it's it's like a moonshot so it may not be done for 10 20 years right now the biggest one is like 200 million people all on one tree all connect and i'm on that tree so and you can figure out how you're connected to people like Barack Obama is my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's 
wife's seventh great nephew. So <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, it's like so six cool. degrees of Kevin yeah, Bacon. Exactly. Uh, and we're all Kevin Bacon. So my book is about that and how I, I took that idea and I was like, well, you know, if we're all one big family, I sh- why not throw a family reunion for everyone in the world? So a couple of years ago, I did that. It's a big party? Big party. Love it. I didn't get all seven billion, but... <laughs> not yet. There's still time. <laughs> yeah, There's all right. still time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for people that are actually interested in, like you said, it's learning about your generation's past narrative, their successes, their failures, it makes it makes your family happier, right? Uh, yeah, people. for sure. For so sure. people that are interested in that, how, how would you recommend they go about learning about the genealogy of their family? Well, I think that the these services now are just getting better and better because they're getting more documents online. And they're all, there's some good ones. You know, Ancestry is probably the most famous, but there's also MyHeritage. The one, if you want to get on the world family tree, is called genie.com, G-E-N-I.com. That will hook you up to everyone, you know. And you can actually see who all you're related to? Or how's how's it? Well, you can like type into the search bar, you know, Albert Einstein, and then it'll say how you're related to him. Like, you know, it'll be like 14 people, but it'll be. That's uh, too cool. Yeah, it's fun. So creating an interconnected world. We're all. Exactly. We're all related. That's it. Love it. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, so thanks so much Thank for Thank you, uh, cousin. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us on the Fell on Podcast. It was Well, uh, I love the pleasure. as I say, I love the idea and I uh, I am excited for you to either succeed or fail. Either way. It's a win. It's a win. Love it. Well, I'll come back and share the challenge. I would love that. So thanks, AJ. Yeah. Thank you. You can find AJ at AJJacobs.com and you can also connect to AJ on Twitter. He's at AJ Jacobs on Twitter. That's at AJ Jacobs. And he's super active. All the links and resources AJ and I discussed, including more information on his latest books and experiments, can be found at the page created especially for this episode. You'll find it all at failon.com slash 003. And finally, as I'm creating this project with the simple goal of getting people to take action through embracing failure, if you could do one thing to support my mission, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd be so kind to rate and review the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. This will actually help the podcast be visible to more people. And if you feel it deserves a five-star rating and you leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode as simply a small way to say thank you. But to rate and review the podcast, just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.